0: I handed everyone i actually handed to you you got a little stone when you came in and i don't know what you're doing with your stone but those stones were to remind you that you are a living stone in the holy house that god is building and as a living stone you are a special priesthood to god to offer sacrifices acceptable to him and i asked you to put that stone somewhere where you would see it all the time and mine is on my desk. And so if you come into my office, you're going to see that stone on my desk. And every day I come in there, it reminds me I am a living stone. And I'm going to offer today a sacrifice to God as a priest acceptable to him. And I hope you've got your stone somewhere that will remind you. To the sermon today, this lady was walking by a pet store. And there was this parrot in the door of the pet store. She walked by. The parrot said, lady, you're ugly. And she was offended. She came back that same night, that same day, uh, at evening, walked by the pet store, and the parrot was there. Hey, lady, you're so ugly. And she was offended. She went in and found the manager and said, your bird is highly offensive. Don't allow that to happen again or there will be consequences. And he apologized all over himself, the manager, and said it will not happen again the next day she goes by the pet store just to see what would happen and she passes this bird again in anticipation and the bird goes hey lady and she goes yes in anticipation you know (laughs) why do I tell that story because we're coming to a text today that we don't know everything in this text It's a difficult one. In fact, I looked over 10 different commentaries, and on some of the sections, there were seven different opinions, seven different theories. And I want you to know, though, that even though there are some difficult parts in the Bible, every part that needs to be clear for our salvation and our sanctification and for all kinds of things is very, very clear, and God wants us to use our minds in some things that are difficult. And so today, I give you advance warning. We're going to be having to think. I don't want to do all the work today. I want you to work with me. I want you to think. And so do not put your mind in neutral, okay? Say, yes, I won't. Okay, thank you. Good. Let's take a look then at our text. I'd like you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word as we read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. If you're using a pew Bible during the sermon, it's page 1016. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Praise God you may be seated. Can you see any difficulties in this text? It is loaded with difficulties. And I thought to myself, why didn't I give this to Pastor Chris to preach? But Pastor Chris isn't here today. Do you know where he is? He was in Chicago this week because he graduated with his bachelor's from the Moody Bible Institute on Friday. And he did a lot of work. Yes. So when next you see Pastor Chris, you give him a lot of congratulations. Because all the while he was working so hard here at Old North, he was also doing a lot of work in his program well we've been in first Peter for a number of months and I think by now if you've been astute and you've been a student of the word you've discovered that the major theme of the book is this how to bear up under suffering for doing what's right and we don't get credit for suffering when we do what's wrong Jesus said that Peter said it. but when you suffer for doing what's right then you bear up and you get credit for that. And so all the way through, Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 to 5, we're talking about suffering and how you bear up under that. You see, suffering comes to everyone's door sooner or later. Not one of you will ever escape it, and it's going to come as is in Peter's generation, so is ours. We don't like it. And if it lingers, we want to get rid of it, and somehow we don't want to have it around. And so we're told over and over again, by Peter in this little book, that suffering is going to come. It's a hard lesson to learn how to suffer for doing what is right. Now, in his teaching, what does Peter continue to do? He says, you're going to suffer, he lifts Christ up as a model. You're going to suffer, he lifts up Christ as a model. But in this section, he goes deeper than Christ being a model. He goes and touches the sufferings of Christ in an entirely different way. Now, some of you are old enough to remember Paul Harvey News and Comment. May I see your hands? Remember Paul Harvey News and Comment? A number of you. Well, he had a section on his broadcast where it was, and, that's, and this is the rest of the story. And he would take a commonly known story and tell us something that we didn't know about it to make it much more meaningful. And so Peter today is going to tell us the rest of the story. Yes, Christ suffered. Yes, he was a model for us, but it goes far deeper than that. The rest of the story is he died so that we could live. And today, he goes into all that that means. Now, when you look at the difficulties in this text, I want you to see the great thing in these four or five verses. You are not to look at the difficulties of interpretation. You are to look at Christ. Christ is the centerpiece of this passage. And if you miss that, you miss the entire point of the text. And so today, I want you to be amazed at the Lord. I want you to worship for all that he's done in his suffering. And he is the point of the passage. He is the rest of the story. So the big idea of the text. Christ suffered once for sins so that good things could happen in this suffering-infested world. Let me say that again. Christ suffered once for sins so that good things could happen in this suffering-infested world. And as a centerpiece, I want you to see the four good things, which are just a sampling, by the way, four good things that Christ did because of his sufferings. Good thing number one. In his suffering, Christ brought us to God in verse 18. You want to know something? If Christ had not suffered on the cross, we would all be lost. We would have no hope. We would be irretrievably apart from God. But it was through the suffering of Christ on the cross that he turned our hopeless and helpless estate around. And the best news that you will ever see is found here. Because because Christ suffered, we have been brought to God. So let's look at this phrase by phrase. First of all, it says, for Christ also suffered. That word for in there takes us back to the verses that would be for. And so in those previous verses, we find that Christ suffered, but he didn't do anything wrong. And what's more, we're told in verse 17 that when he suffered and did anything wrong, it was in the will of God. Maybe some of you remember when he prayed in the garden. He prayed this prayer in part. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so this little word for takes us back to the verses before and shows us that Christ was in suffering and in his suffering in the will of God. Now see that little word also? Sometimes sometimes our pain is so all-encompassing that we forget that other people suffer. And sometimes it is so heavy upon us that we're self-consumed. But Peter wants us to know that not only do we suffer, Christ also suffered, and he wants us to get in tune with his suffering, not just ours. And so the text says, Christ suffered. And the focus of this text isn't the suffering over his life, it is on the cross. His cross death, the excruciating suffering of crucifixion. And none of us have ever suffered like that. And what Peter wants is that we would get in tune emotionally with the sufferings of Christ, not just doctrinally. And so he tells us that Christ also suffered. You aren't the only one. I'm not the only one. And when he suffered, he suffered for our redemption. We move on to the next phrase. Once for sins. What in the world is a sin? Sin is an action, an attitude, or a thought that goes against God and His divine law. And so all of us have sinned. And our sin, the Bible says, separates us from God. And Romans tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And if nothing is done about it, we're all going to be separated from God. But Christ died for those sins and made an atonement for us. So that in His extreme suffering, He took on Himself the transgressions that were ours but notice the text says that Christ suffered and died only once now if you know anything about the Old Testament you're going to know every year on the Day of Atonement the high priest would bring in the sacrificial animals and would slay them and it would atone for the sin for that year but it was insufficient it was temporary and it was looking forward to the suffering of Christ and now Peter says it was a once For all time and eternity suffering he would never have to die again there would never have to be a sacrifice for sin again the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never do what Christ did and he did it once never to be slain again and so our text moves on to the next phrase the righteous for the unrighteous better translated the righteous capital R the righteous one for the unrighteous ones do you see what this verse says We should have died there. That was our problem. That was our sin. We should have paid our own penalty. But Christ took our place. In fact, had we died for our own sins, it still wouldn't have atoned. Do you know why? Because we would have been blemished, sacrifices. It took a holy spotless Lamb of God in the sight of God. And so Jesus took our place. Theologically, we call this the substitutionary atonement of Christ. As a sinless sacrifice, he suffered in our place. It was an act of extreme love. And this text tells us why he loved us that much, because it had a purpose. It says that he might bring us to God. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. We were reconciled to God by his death, by the death of, of his son. And so the Bible teaches us that we were once enemies from God. But Christ took our place and on the cross made it possible for us to be friends of God. He brought us to God and there was no other way to connect us to the Lord except through his death. Now the next phrase goes on. Being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit. Ah, we now come to a really tricky part. We all know what it means that to be put to death in the, in the flesh. Jesus died physically. But we also know, I think, that we have another part of us. It's our spirit. What happens to the spirits of those who die physically? It tells us here. I think think most of you probably realize that the Bible teaches that when you die, whether you're a believer or not, your spirit continues to live. And so it wants us to know that it was no different for Christ. When he died, his spirit was quickened. He was still alive. And even though his body was asleep in the tomb, his spirit was alive. It was quickened, quickened, and completely mobile, his spirit, and completely conscious. So while his body lay in the grave, physically dead, his spirit was alive. So I hope you are with me so far. The good thing number one that happened, even though there's some difficulties in the text, is that when christ died on the cross excruciating suffering never having done anything wrong he took our place so he could bring us to god and the best thing that could ever happen to you the best thing that could ever happen to me is to trust christ and allow him to bring us to god well let's move on to good thing number two christ was able to do something because he was made alive in the spirit that his spirit lived on. So good thing number two is that Christ ministered while in the grave. Now, I don't know if you know this, but death did not hold Christ completely in the grave even for those three days. While his body was there, his spirit was alive. While people were crying that he died, his spirit was ministering some other place. And that's what this section is about. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up. This section is a very hard section to understand. Over the centuries, better minds than mine by far have tried to figure this out. And there are still many, many opinions. So if you think I'm going to give you the answer, the best opinion today, I'm going to disappoint you. I can never measure up to some of the work that's already been done. But what I want you to know today as I talk about this is that we can come to a satisfactory understanding. And that's what I'm shooting for. I might not have all the precision, but I'm going to bring you to a satisfactory understanding so that you can appreciate what Peter is saying here. What are we looking at in verses 19 through 20? Basically it says that Christ in his living spirit while he was in the tomb went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because those spirits did not obey God after God waited 120 years for them to, to repent in the days of Noah while Noah was building the ark. That's what verses 19 and 20 say. So what's all this about? Well, let me take this again phrase by phrase. The first phrase says that Christ went and proclaimed. Now there's all kinds of theories as to where he went. And I'm going to let that research to you. You can go online and find out all those theories about where people think that he went. Here's my general take on it. The Bible teaches us that the souls of all departed mankind are still alive and conscious. So that in the Old Testament or the New or whatever, if somebody died and didn't believe in Christ or in in, in the Lord, they are held somewhere, the Bible doesn't tell us, as awake people. They're held somewhere in captivity. And so, we're not sure where that is, but somewhere they are there. And the word says that Jesus went to that somewhere and proclaimed what did he proclaim at that place? That's another mystery. And we're not told, but speculation abounds. So let me start with the first hint in the puzzle. In the New Testament, when you use the word proclaim, it also has the word gospel next to it. So we are suspecting that when it says that Christ proclaimed, there was some good news involved. Even though we don't know where he went for sure, it says he proclaimed there was probably some good news involved. And I think we get a great hint in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So listen as I read. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why, here it comes, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. I think in part this is a commentary saying that wherever Jesus went, he proclaimed some version of the good news. Now, do you see what's happening to the plot here? It's thickening. Do you know why I say it's thickening? It's because you're probably asking, does this mean that dead people who were alive somewhere held captive until the Lord's final judgment? Does this mean that when they heard the gospel proclaimed in that afterlife, that they had an opportunity to repent? The answer is no. The Bible teaches clearly That once you live your life and die, it's over. There is no other opportunity to repent. So we don't know exactly what was said, but we're sure that somehow the gospel was proclaimed in some sense, and we're also sure that these people did not have an opportunity to repent. Which leads us then to this phrase, the spirits in prison. Who were these people? Here's where it really gets interesting. Once again, many, many theories about But isn't it wonderful when the text gives us the answer? And the answer is in this text. The text tells us in verse six that the spirits in prison were those in Noah's days who refused to repent, and those who did repent, those eight came safely through on the ark. So we know that the spirits in prison were those in Noah's day that were killed in the flood, whose spirits like Christ remained alive, but somehow he went and proclaimed something to them. Now let's put all this together for good thing number two. Good thing number two is this. Even when Jesus lay dead physically in the tomb, his spirit was alive and active and ministering. Death could not hold him pray. And today. We have the fullness of the gospel. We don't know what's proclaimed to those people, but today, upon whom the ages of grace have come, we can now know the complete gospel of Christ and be saved through his resurrection. Good thing number three. Christ saves people through non-water baptism. Peter, you keep on giving us hard stuff, but you know what I'm happy about? he doesn't lead us down the wrong road here because if he wasn't clear here, guess what would be a doctrine in many churches across the world? Baptismal regeneration, that you get saved through water baptism. He's not saying that. In fact, he clears that up immediately. He says in verse 21, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not water that saves you at all. In fact, I want you to know that there are five baptisms in the New Testament. I'm going to share them with you briefly. Baptism number one is the baptism of John. And this was a baptism by John the Baptist to Israel when he was preparing them for Messiah. It was a baptism unto repentance. And when Jesus came, that, that, excuse me, that baptism stopped. Baptism number two is the baptism of Christ, unique to Christ. He was the only one ever baptized that way. And it wasn't for sin. He was baptized in the will of God to show the world that he was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God and he came to fulfill all righteousness. The third baptism is the baptism of salvation. You see, at the point of faith in Christ, Paul tells us that we are spiritually united with Christ and he uses the word baptism to get that idea out that we were united with him. And Romans 6 says that when we believed, We were baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that was an unobservable moment, but it was a moment indeed of salvation. And when we were united through faith to Christ, we were baptized in that time and at that moment. The fourth baptism is the baptism of the Spirit. That baptism happens at salvation salvation as well. And you can't feel it. You don't perceive it. But that baptism is uniting us to each other as the body of Christ and in giving the spiritual gifts. So that when we were baptized in the spirit, we were united together and given the spiritual gifts that we are going to use in ministry to one another. The last baptism in the New Testament is the baptism of water. And this is where we actually get into the water. And that water becomes a symbol of an inner reality that's already happened sometime earlier. It does not happen in the water. It just symbolizes that earlier we were united with Christ and now it's an outward show of inner reality. So, which baptism is in view in our text 21? It's the third one. It's the baptism of salvation. It has nothing to do with water at all. In fact, it says in verse 21 that this baptism corresponds to the ark that brought safely through eight people through the waters of judgment. So it's Christ who brings us safely through, away from judgment and into his power and presence through the resurrection of the dead. My friends, Jesus is the ark. And what does God do? He saves us. And in that salvation motif, he likens it to baptism that we have been brought safely through. Now let's continue on with verse 21. Are you with me? Here comes another hard one the phrase, an appeal to God for a a good conscience in verse 21. That's hard to understand. I could well wish that Peter would have just kind of let that one out because it kind of muddies things up a little bit. I wish he would have said, baptism now saves you, drop that phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would have been easier. But he adds to it this idea about an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? It, It means You just don't get religious and expect to be saved. You appeal to God from your heart with total sincerity, with a good conscience. You ask the Lord to save you as though you actually got on the ark and in your conscience, in your heart of hearts, you realize this really meant something. It wasn't just a ceremonial thing at all and that God would bring you safely through. And when you cry out to God with a sincere heart, he will save you. He will get you Into the ark, as it were. Now, how many of you are glad that the Lord saved more than eight this time around? (laughs) Can you imagine if, if He only saved eight where you and I would be? He is saving millions today. He is the ark, and whoever calls upon Him with a clear and good conscience, He saves, He brings them through. Well, good thing number one, number three, is not about water saving us at all. It's about Jesus rescuing us from sin and judgment like he did the day, in the days of Noah. Now, I think this is kind of funny before I move on to the last one. Peter, do you know what he says about Paul's writings? In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says of Paul's writings this. There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. You know what's funny about that? Peter should look at his own writings. <laughs> they are hard to understand. So I'm very happy to tell you, even though I want you to keep on thinking with me as we look through this, verse 22, the last good thing, is an easier one. It's very clear. And I think you're going to like this one as well. Good thing number four. As we speak, Christ is in heaven right now in complete control. Verse 22. Verse 22. I want you to know that in verse 22, that's the end of the digression that he took in verses 19, 20, and 21. The flow of thought goes from verse 18 to 22. And so I'm gonna put it together for you. And I'm not gonna include the digression we just talked about. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him." How many are glad that the death of Christ was not the end of the story? No, the end of the story is that He is now in heaven once again. Good news at the right hand of the Father with all the angels, all the authorities, all the powers, all the world subject to Him. It is great news, and he wants to be sure that we get it. So he reinforces this truth in other scriptures. Psalm 8, Ephesians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 2, all telling us, even in the centuries-old confessions, that Jesus is now in control at the right hand of the Father. And verse 22, what does it mean? It means that Christ wins and the devil doesn't. Christ wins. Everything is under his control. Okay, let's be honest. Are you certain that the scripture is true? I mean, just look at the world the way it is. Is everything under, it, under the Lord's control? I mean, look at all the crime. Look at all the sin in the world. Look at all the hurt. Look at all the pain. Look at the evil governments. And you're here telling me that this verse says that Jesus is in control? I am grateful for Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 to give us some information here because if we didn't have this, we might all be walking out of here saying, ah, the Bible isn't true. Here's what Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right now, it doesn't look like he's in control. But I want you to understand what is going on in verse 22. It is not saying that when he went to heaven... Everything came into his control, and nothing is out of whack anymore. What this is saying is that when he went to heaven, he from heaven is now orchestrating all history and prophecy to its end, and it will not get out of his control. In other words, right now, he didn't solve all the problems. But in heaven, he's bringing it all to a conclusion someday, according to the prophecies His wisdom and his will. And in the meantime, he is powerful enough to come to your side and mine and help us in our current pain. When we think things are out of control, they are not. He's working things together and in that process still has time, still has power to come to our side and help us in our pain. Jesus is in control. The problem is, there's another problem. The myth is we think We're in control. That we can control, if not the world, we should be able to control our little slice of it. I want you to know how stupid and exhausting that idea is. We have no real power. We have no real control at all. Jesus is in control, not us. And sometimes it's a hard lesson to learn. Many of you know that in January, Marie and I found out that one of our sons is a heroin addict. We didn't know beans about heroin addiction. We were heartbroken at the discovery, and there was something in me with all the years of ministry and all that the giftings of the Lord, that the Lord had given me that somehow I could control this, that I could control Ben, and I could control the problem and, 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 and get him into rehab and all those other things. Was I ever wrong? I had to come to the realization that humans cannot control heroin. I couldn't control Ben even though I tried everything I knew short of pressing him in every possible way. And then almost two weeks ago, he was arrested and jailed on serious charges against him. And today, my son, while I stand here behind this pulpit, my son is in a prison in Erie, Pennsylvania, and there isn't a thing I can do. I have no control. But what does verse 22 say? That the Lord is orchestrating all things under his control and the Lord is stronger than heroin. The Lord is stronger than heroin dealers. The Lord is stronger than prison. The Lord is even stronger than death and he is in control. And one day he will vanquish all of these things and assert himself as the king of kings and lord of lords and in the meantime has enough power to come by us when we're hurting and realize we don't have control and get us through our darkness, it is amazing, the power of God. How I love verse 22 and how it has come to mean so much to me. I tell you, if verse 22 were not true, that Jesus is in control, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be standing up here preaching something I didn't believe. I'd be out in Florida where it's warmer right now collecting Social Security. But I believe it to the depths of my being. And what's more, Paul says, we who have been baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, tells us that we are also seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Why? So that in the heavenlies, not only do we have authority, but we have a front row seat to watch Christ bring all things under his control and at the same time, We'll watch him demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So today, we've come through some difficult interpretive questions. But the focus has been on Christ as the centerpiece. I don't want you to get... Off focus on there, onto the difficulties of the passage. In fact, I have long come to understand I would rather have a full knowledge of Christ any day than a full knowledge of difficult texts. And today, Peter is saying, Christ is the centerpiece. He died for you, He suffered for you. He went to hell to proclaim a gospel, and He's now in heaven bringing all things under His control. And while that happens, He's here to help us. So let's worship today this Christ who died came to life and is seated at the right hand of the Father one day to come and today to help us. I'm offering an invitation today. The Lord has kind of sensed in my heart that there might be somebody here who needs to cry out to God and appeal for a good conscience. You've never been saved. You've not been brought to this ark of Jesus Christ and you're on the waters that are being prepared for judgment, but you can be spared that. Maybe you need to come to Christ today and he's talking to you. There are others of you who are suffering and you're like me. We're in a tough place and we're trying to control all this and we've got to come to the place where we realize we can't control anything. But the Lord comes alongside of us and helps us and in the end, he is in control. And so I'm going to ask you to stand and if the Spirit of God has been speaking to you, for salvation or for help today in your time of need. I'm going to ask you to come forward right now as the music is under me. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to sing a song of victory. I wait for you as I wait in the first service. I wait now for some of you to come and be touched of the Lord in a very special way.